Hey everyone, it is I, DB Spitzer, here with week four of Edgar Allan Poe, The Collected Works, The Raven Edition. So that's volume four. Yeah, that's that's what we got going on on Black Clock Audio Tales. Also, we have, uh, at some point in time, soon, we're going to have Ken Height talking about Edgar Allan Poe and some Dave from Dave's Corner of the Universe and Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans reading some Poe for us. So here we are. Edgar Allan Poe, and of course, as always, this episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter. Don't, 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 uh, don't, don't succumb to, to frostbite. Just make sure you wear slippers. It's a good plan, but, you know, if you're going outside in subarctic temperatures, wear more than bunny slippers. Just word of advice. BunnySlippers.com. Don't die of a exhaustion and exposure yeah also found item clothing wear cool shirts from your favorite cool cult films of the 80s and 90s and some 70s stuff okay all right and also of course check out articulate warbling with zach ferguson look for him and dave's underground goat shenanigans on pgttcm.com and you can follow us on instagram you can follow us on facebook and you can follow us on twitter pgttcm.com black clock audio tales just search for those two things and you will find us out in the world on the internet all that fun stuff all right edgar Allan poe right now and remember hey sorry <laughs> remember if you want people to know about it share it with other people let other people know about it uh rate review give it us uh five stars on the amazon and uh, not amazon the itunes or stitcher or whatever uh, thank you so much recording by alan winterell the System of Dr. Tarr and Professor Feather by Edgar Allan Poe During the autumn of 18-blank, while on a tour through the extreme southern provinces of France, my route led me within a few miles of a certain Maison de Sainte, or private madhouse, about which I had heard much in Paris from my medical friends. As I had never visited a place of the kind, I thought the opportunity too good to be lost, and so proposed to my traveling companion, a gentleman with whom I had made a casual acquaintance a few days before, that we should turn aside for an hour or so and look through the establishment. To this he objected, pleading haste in the first place, and in the second, a very usual horror at the sight of a lunatic. He begged me, however, not to let any mere courtesy towards himself interfere with the gratification of my curiosity, and said that he would ride on leisurely so that I might overtake him during the day or at all events during the next. As he bade me good-bye, I bethought me that there might be some difficulty in obtaining access to the premises, and mentioned my fears on this point. He replied that, in fact, unless I had personal knowledge of the superintendent, Monsieur Maillard, or some credential in the way of a letter, a difficulty might be found to exist, as the regulations of these private madhouses were more rigid than the public hospital laws. For himself, he added, he had, some years since, made the acquaintance of Maillard, and would so far assist me as to ride up to the door and introduce me, although his feelings on the subject of lunacy would not permit of his entering the house. I thanked him, and turning from the main road, we entered a grass-grown bypath which, in half an hour, nearly lost itself in a dense forest clothing the base of a mountain. Through this dank and gloomy wood we rode some two miles, 
when the Maison de Sainte came into view. It was a fantastic chateau, much dilapidated, and indeed scarcely tenantable through age and neglect. Its aspect inspired me with absolute dread, and checking my horse, I half resolved to turn back. I soon, however, grew ashamed of my weakness, and proceeded. As we rode up to the gateway, I perceived it slightly open, and the visage of a man peering through. In an instant afterward, this man came forth, accosted my companion by name, shook him cordially by the hand, and begged him to alight. It was Monsieur Maillard himself. He was a portly, fine-looking gentleman of the old school, with a polished manner and a certain air of gravity, dignity, and authority which was very impressive. My friend, having presented me, mentioned my desire to inspect the establishment, and received Monsieur Maillard's assurance that he would show me all attention, now took leave, and I saw him no more. When he had gone, the superintendent ushered me into a small and exceedingly neat parlor, containing, among other indications of refined taste, many books, drawings, pots of flowers, and musical instruments. A cheerful fire blazed upon the hearth. At a piano, singing an aria from Bellini, sat a young and very beautiful woman, who, at my entrance, paused in her song and received me with graceful courtesy. Her voice was low, and her whole manner subdued. I thought, too, that I perceived the traces of sorrow in her countenance, which was excessively, although to my taste not unpleasingly, pale. She was attired in deep mourning, and excited in my bosom a feeling of mingled respect, interest, and admiration. I had heard at Paris that the institution of Monsieur Maillard was managed upon what is vulgarly termed the system of soothing, that all punishments were avoided, that even confinement was seldom resorted to, that the patients, while secretly watched, were left much apparent liberty, and that most of them were permitted to roam about the house and grounds in the ordinary apparel of persons in right mind. Keeping these impressions in view, I was cautious in what I said before the young lady, for I could not be sure that she was sane, and in fact there was a certain restless brilliancy about her eyes which half led me to imagine she was not. I confined my remarks, therefore, to general topics, and to such as I thought would not be displeasing or exciting even to a lunatic. She replied in a perfectly rational manner to all that I said, and even her original observations were marked with the soundest good sense, but a long acquaintance with the metaphysics of mania had taught me to put no faith in such evidence of sanity, and I continued to practice throughout the interview the caution with which I commenced it. Presently a smart footman in livery brought in a tray with fruit, wine, and other refreshments, of which I partook, the lady soon afterward leaving the room. As she departed, I turned my eyes in an inquiring manner toward my host. No, he said, oh no, a member of my family, my niece, and a most accomplished woman. I beg a thousand pardons for the suspicion, I replied, but of course you will know how to excuse me. The excellent administration of your affairs here is well understood in Paris, and I thought it just possible, you know. <laughs> yes, yes, say no more, or rather it is myself who should thank you for the commendable prudence you have displayed. We seldom find so much of forethought in young men, and more than once some unhappy contretemps has occurred in consequence of thoughtlessness on the part of our visitors. While my former system was in operation, and my patients were permitted the privilege of roaming to and fro at will, they were often aroused to a dangerous frenzy by injudicious persons who called to inspect the house. Hence I was obliged to enforce a rigid system of exclusion, 
and none obtained access to the premises on whose discretion I could not rely. While your former system was in operation, I said, repeating his words, do I understand then to say that the soothing system of which I have heard so much is no longer in force? It is now, he replied, several weeks since we have concluded to renounce it forever. Indeed, you astonish me. We found it, sir, he said with a sigh, absolutely necessary to return to the old usages. The danger of the soothing system was, at all times, appalling, and its advantages have been much overrated. I believe, sir, that in this house it has been given a fair trial, if ever in any. We did everything that rational humanity could suggest. I am sorry that you could not have paid us a visit at an earlier period, that you might have judged for yourself, but I presume you are conversant with the soothing practice, with its details. Not altogether. What I have heard has been third or fourth hand. I may state the system, then, in general terms, as one in which the patients were menage, humored. We contradicted no fancies which entered the brains of the mad. On the contrary, we not only indulged but encouraged them, and many of our most permanent cures have been thus effected. There is no argument which so touches the feeble reason of the madman as the argumentum ad absurdum. We have had men, for example, who fancied themselves chickens. The cure was to insist upon the thing as a fact, to accuse the patient of stupidity in not sufficiently perceiving it to be a fact, and thus to refuse him any other diet for a week than that which properly appertains to a chicken. In this manner a little corn and gravel were made to perform wonders. But was this species of acquiescence all? By no means. We put much faith in amusements of a simple kind, such as music, dancing, gymnastics, exercises generally, cards, certain classes of books, and so forth. We affected to treat each individual as if for some ordinary physical disorder, and the word lunacy was never employed. At great point was to set each lunatic to guard the actions of all the others. To repose confidence in the understanding or discretion of a madman is to gain him body and soul. In this way, we were enabled to dispense with an expensive body of keepers. And you had no punishments of any kind? None. And you never confined your patients? Very rarely. Now and then the malady of some individual growing to a crisis, or taking a sudden turn of fury, we conveyed him to a secret cell, lest his disorder should infect the rest, and there kept him until we could dismiss him to his friends. For with the raging maniac we have nothing to do. He is usually removed to the public hospitals. And you have now changed all this, and you think for the better? Decidedly, the system had its disadvantages, and even its dangers. It is now, happily, exploded throughout all the Maison de Sainte of France. I am very much surprised, I said, at what you tell me, for I made sure that, at this moment, no other method of treatment for mania existed in any portion of the country. You are yet young, my friend, replied my host. But the time will arrive when you will learn to judge for yourself of what is going on in the world, without trusting to the gossip of others. Believe nothing you hear, and only one half that you see. Now about our Maison de Saint. It is clear that some ignoramus has misled you. After dinner, however, when you have sufficiently recovered from the fatigue of your ride, I will be happy to take you over the house and introduce you to a system which, in my opinion, and that of everyone who has witnessed its operation, is incomparably the most effectual as yet devised. Your own? I inquired. One of your own invention? 
I am proud, he replied, to acknowledge that it is, at least in some measure. In this manner I conversed with Monsieur Maillard for an hour or two, during which he showed me the gardens and conservatories of the place. I cannot let you see my patients, he said, just at present. To a sensitive mind, there is always more or less of the shocking in such exhibitions. And I do not wish to spoil your appetite for dinner. We will dine. I can give you some veal a la Menholt, with cauliflowers in velou sauce. After that, a glass of Clos de Vougeot. Then your nerves will be sufficiently steadied. At six, dinner was announced, and my host conducted me into a large salle à manger, where a very numerous company were assembled, twenty-five or thirty in all. They were apparently people of rank, certainly of high breeding, although their habiliments, I thought, were extravagantly rich, partaking somewhat too much of the ostentatious finery of the Vielle Cour. I noticed that at least two-thirds of these guests were ladies, and some of the latter were by no means accoutred in what a Parisian would consider good taste at the present day. Many females, for example, whose age could not have been less than seventy, were bedecked with a profusion of jewelry, such as rings, bracelets, and earrings, and wore their bosoms and arms shamefully bare. I observed, too, that very few of the dresses were well made, or at least that very few of them fitted the wearers. In looking about, I discovered the interesting girl to whom Monsieur Maillard had presented me in the little parlor, but my surprise was great to see her wearing a hoop and farthingale, with high-heeled shoes and a dirty cap of Brussels lace, so much too large for her that it gave her face a ridiculously diminutive expression. When I had first seen her, she was attired most becomingly in deep mourning. There was an air of oddity, in short, about the dress of the whole party, which at first caused me to recur to my original idea of the soothing system, and to fancy that Monsieur Maillard had been willing to deceive me until after dinner that I might experience no uncomfortable feelings during the repast at finding myself dining with lunatics. But I remembered having been informed in Paris that the southern provincialists were a peculiarly eccentric people, with a vast number of antiquated notions, and then, too, upon conversing with several members of the company, my apprehensions were immediately and fully dispelled. The dining room itself, although perhaps sufficiently comfortable and of good dimensions, had nothing too much of elegance about it. For example, the floor was uncarpeted. In France, however, a carpet is frequently dispensed with. The windows, too, were without curtains. The shutters, being shut, were securely fastened with iron bars, applied diagonally after the fashion of our ordinary shop shutters. The apartment, I observed, formed, in itself, a wing of the chateau, and thus the windows were on three sides of the parallelogram, the door being at the other. There were no less than ten windows in all. The table was superbly set out. It was loaded with plate, and more than loaded with delicacies. The profusion was absolutely barbaric. There were meats enough to have feasted the anicum. Never in all my life had I witnessed so lavish, so wasteful an expenditure of the good things of life. There seemed very little taste, however, in the arrangements, and my eyes, accustomed to quiet lights, were sadly offended by the prodigious glare of a multitude of wax candles, which, in silver candelabra, were deposited upon the table and all about the room wherever it was possible to find a place. There were several active servants in attendance, and upon a large table at the farther end of the apartment were seated seven or eight people with fiddles, fifes, 
trombones, and a drum. These fellows annoyed me very much at intervals during the repast by an infinite variety of noises, which were intended for music, and which appeared to afford much entertainment to all present with the exception of myself. Upon the whole, I could not help thinking that there was much of the bizarre about everything I saw, but then the world is made up of all kinds of persons, with all modes of thought, and all sorts of conventional customs. I had traveled, too, so much as to be quite an adept at the nil admirari, so I took my seat very coolly at the right hand of my host, and having an excellent appetite, did justice to the good cheer set before me. The conversation in the meantime was spirited and general. The ladies, as usual, talked a great deal. I soon found that nearly all the company were well educated, and my host was a world of good-humored anecdote in himself. He seemed quite willing to speak of his position as superintendent of a maison de sainte, and indeed the topic of lunacy was, much to my surprise, a favorite one with all present. A great many amusing stories were told, having reference to the whims of the patients. We had a fellow here once, said a fat little gentleman who sat at my right a fellow that fancied himself a teapot. And by the way, is it not especially singular how often this particular crochet has entered the brain of the lunatic? There is scarcely an insane asylum in France which cannot supply a human teapot. Our gentleman was a Britannia-ware teapot, and was careful to polish himself every morning with buckskin and whiting. And then, said a tall man just opposite, we had here not long ago a person who had taken it into his head that he was a donkey, which, allegorically speaking, you will say was quite true. He was a troublesome patient, and we had much ado to keep him within bounds. For a long time he would eat nothing but thistles, but of this idea we soon cured him by insisting upon his eating nothing else. Then he was perpetually kicking out his heels, so, so... Mr. de Cock, I will thank you to behave yourself. Here interrupted an old lady who sat next to the speaker. Please keep your feet to yourself. You have spoiled my brocade. Is it necessary, pray, to illustrate a mark in so practical a style? Our friend here can surely comprehend you without all this. Upon my word, you are nearly as great a donkey as the poor unfortunate imagined himself. Your acting is very natural as I live. Mille pardon, mademoiselle replied Monsieur de Coq, thus addressed. A thousand pardons. I had no intention of offending. Mademoiselle Laplace, Monsieur de Coq will do himself the honor of taking wine with you. Here Monsieur de Coq bowed low, kissed his hand with much ceremony, and took wine with Mademoiselle Laplace. Allow me, mon ami, now said Monsieur Maillard, addressing myself, allow me to send you a morsel of this veal a la saint Minhot you will find it particularly fine. At this instant, three sturdy waiters had just succeeded in depositing safely upon the table an enormous dish, or trencher, containing what I supposed to be the monstrum horrendum, in form, in Jean's qui lucum adaptum. A closer scrutiny assured me, however, that it was only a small calf roasted whole and set upon its knees, with an apple in its mouth, as is the English fashion of dressing a hare. Thank you, no, I replied. To say the truth, I am not particularly partial to veal a la saint, what is it? For I do not find that it altogether agrees with me. I will change my plate, however, and try some of the rabbit. 
there were several side dishes on the table, containing what appeared to be the ordinary French rabbit, a very delicious morceau, which I can recommend. Pierre, cried the host, change this gentleman's plate and give him a side piece of this rabbit au chat. This what, said I, this rabbit au chat. Why, thank you. Upon second thoughts, no, I will just help myself to some of the ham. There is no knowing what one eats, thought I to myself, at the tables of these peoples of the province. I will have none of their rabbit o shot, and, for the matter of that, none of their cat o rabbit either. And then, said a cadaverous-looking personage near the foot of the table, taking up the thread of the conversation where it had been broken off, and then, among other oddities, we had a patient, once upon a time, who very pertinaciously maintained himself to be a Cordova cheese, and went about with a knife in his hand, soliciting his friends to try a small slice from the middle of his leg. He was a great fool beyond doubt, interposed someone, but not to be compared with a certain individual whom we all know, with the exception of this strange gentleman. I mean the man who took himself for a bottle of champagne, and always went off with a pop and a fizz in this fashion. Here the speaker, very rudely, as I thought, put his right thumb in his left cheek, withdrew it with a sound resembling the popping of a cork, and then, by a dexterous movement of the tongue upon the teeth, created a sharp hissing and fizzing, which lasted for several minutes in imitation of the frothing of champagne. This behavior, I saw plainly, was not very pleasing to Monsieur Maillard, but that gentleman said nothing, and the conversation was resumed by a very lean little man in a big wig. And then there was an ignoramus, said he, who mistook himself for a frog, which, by the way, he resembled in no little degree. I wish you could have seen him, sir. Here the speaker addressed myself. It would have done your heart good to see the natural airs that he put on. Sir, if that man was not a frog, I can only observe that it is a pity he was not. His croak thus, was the finest note in the world, B-flat and when he put his elbows upon the table thus, after taking a glass or two of wine, and distended his mouth thus, and rolled up his eyes thus, and winked them with excessive rapidity thus, why, then, sir, I take it upon myself to say positively that you would have been lost in admiration of the genius of the man. I have no doubt about it, I said. And then, said someone else, there was Petit Gaillard, who thought himself a pinch of snuff and was truly distressed, because he could not take himself between his own finger and thumb. And then there was Jules de Solier, who was a very singular genius indeed, and went mad with the idea that he was a pumpkin. He persecuted the cook to make him up into pies, a thing which the cook indignantly refused to do. For my part, I am by no means sure that a pumpkin pie a la de Solier would not have been very capital eating indeed. You astonish me, said I and I looked inquisitively at Monsieur Maillard. <laughs> said that gentleman. <laughs> Very good indeed. You must not be astonished, mon ami. Our friend here is a wit, a droll. You must not understand him to the letter. And then, said some other one of the party, then there was Buffon Le Grand, another extraordinary personage in his way. He grew deranged through love, and fancied himself possessed of two heads. One of these he maintained to be the head of Cicero, the other he imagined a composite one, 
being Demosthenes from the top of the forehead to the mouth, and Lord Brougham from the mouth to the chin. It is not impossible that he was wrong, but he would have convinced you of his being in the right, for he was a man of great eloquence. He had an absolute passion for oratory, and could not refrain from display. For example, he used to leap upon the dinner-table thus, and, and... Here a friend, at the side of the speaker, put a hand upon his shoulder, and whispered a few words in his ear, upon which he ceased talking with great suddenness, and sank back within his chair. And then, said the friend who had whispered, there was Bouillard, the teetotum. I call him the teetotum because, in fact, he was seized with a droll but not altogether irrational crochet that he had been converted into a teetotum. You would have roared with laughter to see him spin. He would turn round upon one heel by the hour in this manner so. Here the friend, who he had just interrupted by a whisper, performed an exactly similar office for himself. But you, cried the old lady at the top of her voice, your Monsieur Bayard was a madman, and a very silly madman at best, for who, allow me to ask you, ever heard of a human teetotum? The thing is absurd. Madame Joyeuse was a more sensible person, as you know. She had a crochet, but it was instinct with common sense, and gave pleasure to all who had the honor of her acquaintance. She found upon mature deliberation that by some accident she had been turned into a chicken cock, but as such she behaved with propriety. She flapped her wings with prodigious effort, so, so, and as for her crow, it was delicious. Cock-a-doodle-doo, cock-a-doodle-doo, cock-a-doodle-dee-doo-doo. Madame Joyeuse, I will thank you to behave yourself, here interrupted our host very angrily. You can either conduct yourself as a lady should do, or you can quit the table forthwith. Take your choice. The lady, whom I was much astonished to hear addressed as Madame Joyeuse, after the description of Madame Joyeuse she had just given, blushed up to the eyebrows, and seemed exceedingly abashed at the reproof. She hung down her head, and said not a syllable in reply. But another and younger girl resumed the theme. It was my beautiful girl of the little parlor. Oh, Madame Joyeuse was a fool, she exclaimed. But there was really much sound sense, after all, in the opinion of Eugenie Salsafet. She was a very beautiful and painfully modest young lady, who thought the ordinary mode of habilement indecent, and wished to dress herself always by getting outside instead of inside of her clothes. It is a thing very easily done, after all. You only have to do so, and then so, 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 and then so, so, and then so, and then... Mon Dieu! Mademoiselle Salsafet! Here cried a dozen voices at once. What are you about? Forbear, that is sufficient. We see very plainly how it is done. Hold, hold! And several persons were already leaping from their seats to withhold Mademoiselle Salsafet from putting herself upon a par with the Medician Venus when the point was very effectually and suddenly accomplished by a series of loud screams or yells from some portion of the main body of the chateau. My nerves were very much affected indeed by these yells, but the rest of the company I really pitied. I never saw any set of reasonable people so thoroughly frightened in my life. They all grew as pale as so many corpses, and shrinking within their seats sat quivering and gibbering with terror and listening for a repetition of the sound. It came again, louder and seemingly nearer, and then a third time very loud, 
and then a fourth time with a vigor evidently diminished. At this apparent dying away of the noise, the spirits of the company were immediately regained, and all was life and anecdote as before. I now ventured to inquire the cause of the disturbance. A mere bagatelle, said Monsieur Maillard. We are used to these things, and care really very little about them. The lunatics every now and then get up a howl in concert, one starting another, as is sometimes the case with a bevy of dogs at night. It occasionally happens, however, that the concerto yells are succeeded by a simultaneous effort at breaking loose, when, of course, some little danger is to be apprehended. And how many have you in charge? At present we have not more than ten altogether. Principally females, I presume. Oh, no, every one of the men, and stout fellows, I can tell you. Indeed, I have always understood that the majority of lunatics were of the gentler sex. It is generally so, but not always. Some time ago there were about twenty-seven patients here, and of that number, no less than eighteen were women. But lately matters have changed very much, as you see. Yes, have changed very much, as you see. Here interrupted the gentleman who had broken the shins of Mademoiselle Laplace. Yes, have changed very much, as you see, chimed in the whole company at once. Hold your tongues, every one of you, said my host in a great rage. Whereupon the whole company maintained a dead silence for nearly a minute. As for one lady, she obeyed Monsieur Maillard to the letter, and thrusting out her tongue, which was an excessively long one, held it very resignedly with both hands until the end of the entertainment. And this gentlewoman, said I to Monsieur Maillard, bending over and addressing him in a whisper, this good lady who has just spoken, and who gives us the cock-a-doodle-doo, she, I presume, is harmless? Quite harmless, eh? Harmless? ejaculated he in unfeigned surprise. Why, why, what can you mean? Only slightly touched, said I, touching my head. I take it for granted that she is not particularly, not dangerously affected, eh? Mon Dieu, what is it you imagine? This lady, my particular old friend Madame Joyeuse, is as absolutely sane as myself. She has her little eccentricities, to be sure. But then, you know, all old women, all very old women, are more or less eccentric. Well, to be sure, said I, to be sure. And then the rest of these ladies and gentlemen? Are my friends and keepers, interrupted Monsieur Maillard, drawing himself up with hauteur. My very good friends and assistants. What? All of them, I asked. The women and all? Assuredly, he said. We could not do it all without the women. They are the best lunatic nurses in the world. They have a way of their own, you know. Their bright eyes have a marvelous effect. Something like the fascination of the snake, you know. To be sure, said I, to be sure. They behave a little odd, eh? They are a little queer, eh? Don't you think so? Odd? Queer? Why, do you really think so? We are not very prudish, to be sure. Here in the South do pretty much as we please, enjoy life, and all that sort of thing, you know. To be sure, said I, to be sure. Then again, perhaps, this close to Vougeot is a little heady, you know, a little strong, you understand, eh? To be sure, said I, to be sure. By the by, monsieur, did I understand you to say that the system you have adopted in place of the celebrated soothing system was one of very rigorous severity? By no means. Our confinement is necessarily close, but the treatment, the medical treatment, I mean, is rather agreeable to the patients than otherwise. And the new system is one of your own invention? 
Not altogether. Some portions of it are referable to Professor Tarr, of whom you have necessarily heard. And again, there are modifications in my plan which I am happy to acknowledge as belonging of right to the celebrated Feather, with whom, if I mistake not, you have the honor of an intimate acquaintance? I am quite ashamed to confess, I replied, that I have never even heard of the names of either gentleman before. Good heavens, ejaculated my host, drawing back his chair abruptly and uplifting his hands. I surely did not hear you aright. You did not intend to say, eh, that you have never heard of either the learned Dr. Tarr or the celebrated Professor Feather? I am forced to acknowledge my ignorance, I replied. But the truth should be held inviolate above all things. Nevertheless, I feel humbled to the dust, not to be acquainted with the works of these, no doubt, extraordinary men. I will seek out their writings forthwith, and peruse them with deliberate care. Monsieur Maillard, you have really, I must confess it, you have really made me ashamed of myself. And this was the fact. Say no more, my good young friend, he said kindly, pressing my hand. Join me now in a glass of sauterne. We drank. The company followed our example without stint. They chatted, they jested, they laughed. They perpetuated a thousand absurdities. The fiddles shrieked, the drum rowdy-dowed, the trombones bellowed like so many brazen bulls of Philaris, and the whole scene, growing gradually worse and worse as the wines gained the ascendancy, became at length a sort of pandemonium in petto. In the meantime, Monsieur Maillard and myself with some bottles of Sauterne and Vougeot between us, continued our conversation at the top of the voice. A word spoken in an ordinary key stood no more chance of being heard than the voice of a fish from the bottom of Niagara Falls. And, sir, said I, screaming in his ear, you mentioned something before dinner about the danger incurred in the old system of soothing. How is that? Yes, he replied, there was occasionally very great danger indeed. There is no accounting for the caprices of madmen, and in my opinion as well as that of Dr. Tarr and Professor Feather, it is never safe to permit them to run at large unattended. A lunatic may be soothed, as it is called, for a time, but in the end he is very apt to become obstreperous. His cunning, too, is proverbial and great. If he has a project in view, he conceals his design with a marvelous wisdom, and the dexterity with which he counterfeits sanity presents to the metaphysician one of the most singular problems in the study of mind. When a madman appears thoroughly sane indeed, it is high time to put him in a straitjacket. But the danger, my dear sir, of which you were speaking in your own experience, during your control of this house, have you had practical reason to think liberty hazardous in the case of a lunatic? Here, in my own experience? Well, I may say yes. For example, no so very long while ago, a singular circumstance occurred in this very house. The soothing system, you know, was then in operation, and the patients were at large. They behaved remarkably well, especially so any one of sense might have known that some devilish scheme was brewing from that particular fact, that the fellows behaved so remarkably well. And sure enough, one fine morning the keepers found themselves pinioned hand and foot and thrown into the cells, where they were attended as if they were the lunatics by the lunatics themselves who had usurped the offices of the keepers. You don't tell me so. I have never heard of anything so absurd in my life. Fact, it all came to pass by means of a stupid fellow, a lunatic, who by some means had taken it into his head 
that he had invented a better system of government than any ever heard of before, of lunatic government, I mean. He wished to give his invention a trial, I suppose, and so he persuaded the rest of the patients to join him in a conspiracy for the overthrow of the reigning powers. And he really succeeded? No doubt of it. The keepers and kept were soon made to exchange places. Not that exactly either, for the madmen had been free, but the keepers were shut up in cells forthwith, and treated, I am sorry to say, in a very cavalier manner. But I presume a counter-revolution was soon effected? This condition of things could not have long existed. The country people in the neighborhood, visitors coming to see the establishment, would have given the alarm. There you are out. The head rebel was too cunning for that. He admitted no visitors at all, with the exception, one day, of a very stupid-looking young gentleman, of whom he had no reason to be afraid. He led him in to see the place, just by way of variety, to have a little fun with him, and soon as he had gammoned him sufficiently, he led him out and sent him about his business. And how long, then, did the madmen reign? Oh, a very long time indeed, a month, certainly. How much longer, I can't precisely say. In the meantime, the lunatics had a jolly season of it, that you may swear. They doffed their own shabby clothes and made free with the family wardrobe and jewels. The cellars of the chateau were well stocked with wine, and these madmen are just the devils that know how to drink it. They lived well, I can tell you. And the treatment? What was the particular species of treatment which the leader of the rebels put into operation? Why, as for that, a madman is not necessarily a fool, as I have already observed, and it is my honest opinion that his treatment was a much better treatment than that which is superseded. It was a very capital system indeed, simple, neat, no trouble at all. In fact, it was delicious it was. Here my host's observations were cut short by another series of yells, of the same character as those which had previously disconcerted us. This time, however, they seemed to proceed from persons rapidly approaching. Good heavens, I ejaculated. The lunatics have most undoubtedly broken loose. I very much fear it is so, replied Monsieur Maillard, now becoming excessively pale. He had scarcely finished the sentence before loud shouts and imprecations were heard beneath the windows, and immediately afterward it became evident that some persons outside were endeavoring to gain entrance into the room. The door was beaten upon with what appears to be a sledgehammer, and the shutters were wrenched and shaken with prodigious violence. A scene of the most terrible confusion ensued. Monsieur Maillard, to my excessive astonishment, threw himself under the sideboard. I had expected more resolution at his hands. The members of the orchestra who, for the last fifteen minutes, had been seemingly too much intoxicated to do duty, now sprang all at once to their feet and to their instruments, and scrambling upon their table, broke out with one accord into Yankee Doodle, which they performed, if not exactly in tune, at least with an energy superhuman, during the whole of the uproar. Meantime, upon the main dining table, among the bottles and glasses, leaped the gentleman who, with much difficulty, had been restrained from leaping there before. As soon as he fairly settled himself, he commenced an oration, which, no doubt, was a very capital one, if it could only have been heard. At the same moment, the man with a teetotum predilection set himself through spinning around the apartment with immense energy, and with arms outstretched at right angles with his body, so that he had the air of a teetotum in fact, and knocked everybody down that happened to get in his way. 
and now, too, hearing an incredible popping and fizzing of champagne, I discovered at length that it proceeded from the person who performed the bottle of that delicate drink during dinner. And then again the frogman croaked away as if the salvation of his soul depended upon every note that he uttered. And in the midst of all this, the continuous braying of a donkey arose over all. As for my old friend, Madame Joyeuse, I really could have wept for the poor lady. She appeared so terribly perplexed. All she did, however, was to stand up in a corner by the fireplace and sing out incessantly at the top of her voice, Cock-a-doodle-dee-doo! And now came the climax, the catastrophe of the drama. As no resistance, beyond whooping and yelling and cock-a-doodling, was offered to the encroachments of the party without, the tin windows were very speedily and almost simultaneously broken in. But I shall never forget the emotions of wonder and horror with which I gazed when, leaping through these windows, and down among us pell-mell, fighting, stamping, scratching, and howling, there rushed a perfect army of what I took to be chimpanzees, orangutans, or big black baboons of the Cape of Good Hope. I received a terrible beating, after which I rolled under a sofa and lay still. After lying there some fifteen minutes, during which time I listened with all my ears to what was going on in the room, I came to same satisfactory denouement of this tragedy. Monsieur Maillard, it appeared, in giving me the account of the lunatic who had excited his fellows to rebellion, had been merely relating his own exploits. This gentleman had indeed, some two or three years before, been the superintendent of the establishment, but grew crazy himself and so became a patient. This fact was unknown to the traveling companion who introduced me. The keepers, ten in number, having been suddenly overpowered, were first well-tarred, then carefully feathered, and then shut up in underground cells. They had been so imprisoned for more than a month, during which period Monsieur Maillard had generously allowed them not only the tar and feathers, which constituted his system, but some bread and abundance of water. The latter was pumped on them daily. At length, one escaped through a sewer, giving freedom to all the rest. The soothing system, with important modifications, has been resumed at the chateau. Yet I cannot help agreeing with Monsieur Maillard that his own treatment was a very capital one of its kind. As he justly observed, it was simple, neat, and gave no trouble at all, not the least. I have only to add that, although I have searched every library in Europe for the works of Dr. Tarr and Professor Feather, I have, up to the present day, utterly failed in my endeavors at procuring an edition. End of section 5 Recording by Alan Winterout Audio.boomcoach.com Recording by Libby Gone. How to Write a Blackwood Article by Edgar Allan Poe In the name of the prophet figs, cry of the Turkish fig peddler. I presume everybody has heard of me. My name is the Signora Psyche Zenobia. I know this to be a fact. Nobody but my enemies ever calls me Suki Snobs. I have been assured that Suki is but a vulgar corruption of Psyche, which is good Greek and means the soul. That's me, I'm all soul, and sometimes a butterfly, which latter meaning undoubtedly alludes to my appearance in my new crimson satin dress, with the sky-blue Arabian mantelette and the trimmings of green agraffas, and the seven flounces of orange-coloured auriculas. As for snobs, 
any person who should look at me would be instantly aware that my name wasn't Snobbs. Miss Tabitha Turnip propagated that report through sheer envy. Tabitha Turnip, indeed! Oh, the little wretch! But what can we expect from a turnip? Wonder if she remembers the old adage about blood out of a turnip, etc. Mem, put her in mind of it the first opportunity. Mem again, pull her nose. Where was I? Ah, I have been assured that Snobbs is a mere corruption of Zenobia, and that Zenobia was a queen. So am I. Dr. Moneypenny always calls me the queen of the hearts. And that Zenobia, as well as Psyche, is good Greek, and that my father was a Greek, and consequently I have a right to our patronymic, which is Zenobia, and not by any means Snobbs. Nobody but Tabitha Turnip calls me Suki Snobbs. I am the Signora Psyche Zenobia. As I said before, everybody has heard of me. I am that very Signora Psyche Zenobia, so justly celebrated as corresponding secretary to the Philadelphia Regular Exchange Teetotal Young Bell's Letters, Universal Experimental Bibliographical Association to Civilize Humanity. Dr. Moneypenny made the title for us, and says he chose it because it sounded big like an empty rum puncheon. A vulgar man that sometimes, but he's deep. We all sign the initials of the society after our names, in the fashion of the RSA, Royal Society of Arts, the SDUK, Society for the Diffusion of Useful Knowledge, etc., etc. Dr. Moneypenny says that the S stands for stale, and that the D-U-K spells duck, but it don't. That S-D-U-K stands for stale duck, and not for Lord Rowan's society. But then, Dr. Moneypenny is such a queer man that I am never sure when he is telling me the truth. At any rate, we always add to our names the initials P-R-E-T-T-Y-B-L-U-E-B-A-T-C-H. That is to say, Philadelphia Regular Exchange Teetotal Young Bell's Letters Universal Experimental Bibliographical Association to Civilize Humanity. One letter for each word, which is a decided improvement upon Lord Brougham. Dr. Moneypenny will have it that our initials give our true character, but for my life I can't see what he means. Notwithstanding the good offices of the doctor and the strenuous exertions of the association to get itself into notice, it met with no very great success until I joined it. The truth is, the members indulged in too flippant a tone of discussion, the papers read every Saturday evening were characterized less by depth than buffoonery. They were all whipped syllabub. There was no investigation of first causes, first principles. There was no investigation of anything at all. There was no attention paid to that great point, the fitness of things. In short, there was no fine writing like this. It was all low, very. No profundity, no reading, no metaphysics, nothing which the learned call spirituality, and which the unlearned choose to stigmatize as can't. Dr. M. says I ought to spell can't with a capital K, but I know better. When I joined the society, it was my endeavor to introduce a better style of thinking and writing, and all the world knows how well I have succeeded. We get up as good papers now in the P-R-E-T-T-Y-B-L-U-E-B-A-T-C-H as any to be found even in Blackwood. I say Blackwood because I have been assured that the finest writing upon every subject is to be discovered in the pages of that justly celebrated magazine. We now take it for our model upon all themes and are getting into rapid notice accordingly. 
After all, it's not so very difficult a matter to compose an article of the genuine Blackwood stamp, if only one goes properly about it. Of course, I don't speak of the political articles. Everybody knows how they are managed, since Dr. Moneypenny explained it. Mr. Blackwood has a pair of tailor shears and three apprentices who stand by him for orders. One hands him the Times, another the Examiner, and a third a Cully's new compendium of Slang Wang. Mr. B. merely cuts out and intersperses. It is soon done. Nothing but Examiner, Slang Wang, and Times, then Times, Slang Wang, and Examiner, then Times, Examiner, and Slang Wang. But the chief merit of the magazine lies in its miscellaneous articles, and the best of these comes under the head of what Dr. Moneypenny calls the bizarreries, whatever that may mean, and everybody else calls the intensities. This is a species of writing which I have long known how to appreciate, although it is only since my late visit to Mr. Blackwood, deputed by the Society, that I have been made aware of the exact method of composition. This method is very simple, but not so much so as the politics. Upon my calling at Mr. B.'s and making known to him the wishes of the Society, he received me with great civility, took me into his study, and gave me a clear explanation of the whole process. "'My dear madam,' said he, evidently struck with my majestic appearance, for I had on the crimson satin with the green agraffas and the orange-coloured auriculas. "'My dear madam,' said he, "'sit down. The matter stands thus.' In the first place, your writer of intensities must have very black ink and a very big pen with a very blunt nib. And mark me, Miss Psyche Zenobia, he continued, after a pause, with the most expensive energy and solemnity of mannered. Mark me, that pen must never be mended. Herein, madam, lies the secret, the soul of intensity. I assume upon myself to say that no individual of however great genius ever wrote with a good pen, understand me, a good article. You may take it for granted, but when manuscript can be read, it is never worth reading. It is a leading principle in our faith, to which, if you cannot readily assent, our conference is at an end. He paused. But, of course, as I had no wish to put an end to the conference, I assented to a proposition so very obvious, and one, too, of whose truth I had all along been sufficiently aware. He seemed pleased, and went on with his instructions. It may appear invidious in me, Miss Psyche Zenobia, to refer you to any article or set of articles in the way of model or study, yet perhaps I may as well call your attention to a few cases. Let me see. There was The Dead Alive, a capital thing, the record of a gentleman's sensations when entombed before the breath was out of his body, full of tastes, terror, sentiment, metaphysics, and erudition. You would have sworn that the writer had been born and brought up in a coffin. Then we had the confessions of an opium-eater, fine, very fine, glorious imagination, deep philosophy, acute speculation, plenty of fire and fury, and a good spicing of the decidedly unintelligible. That was a nice bit of flummery, and went down the throats of the people delightfully. They would have it that Coleridge wrote the paper, but not so. It was composed by my pet baboon, Juniper, over a rummer of Holland and water, hot without sugar. This I could scarcely have believed had it been anybody but Mr. Blackwood who assured me of it. Then there was the involuntary experimentalist, 
all about a gentleman who got baked in an oven and came out alive and well, though certainly done to a turn. And then there was the diary of a late physician, where the merit lay in good rant, and indifferent Greek, both of them taking things with the public. And then there was the man in the bell, a paper, by the by, Miss Zenobia, which I cannot sufficiently recommend to your attention. It is the history of a young person who goes to sleep under the clapper of a church bell, and is awakened by its tolling for a funeral. The sound drives him mad, and accordingly, pulling out his tablets, he gives a record of his sensations. Sensations are great things, after all. Should you ever be drowned or hung, be sure to make a note of your sensations. They will be worth to you ten guineas a sheet. If you wish to write forcibly, Miss Zenobia, pay minute attention to the sensations. That I certainly will, Mr. Blackwood, said I. Good, he replied. I see you are a pupil after my own heart, but I must put you au fait in all the details necessary in composing what may be denominated a genuine Blackwood article of the sensation stamp, the kind which you will understand me to say I consider the best for all purposes. The first requisite is to get yourself into such a scrape as no one has ever gotten into before. The oven, for instance, that was a good hit. But if you have no oven or big bell at hand, and if you cannot conveniently tumble out of a balloon, or be swallowed up in an earthquake, or get stuck fast in a chimney, you will have to be contented with simply imagining some similar misadventure. I should prefer, however, that you have the actual fact to bear you out. Nothing so well assists the fancy as an experimental knowledge of the matter in hand. Truth is strange, you know, stranger than fiction, besides being more to the purpose. Here I assured him that I had an excellent pair of garters, and would go and hang myself forthwith. Good, he replied, do so, although hanging is somewhat hackneyed. Perhaps you might do better. Take a dose of Brandreth's pills, and then give us your sensations. However, my instructions will apply equally well to any variety of misadventure, and in your way home you may easily get knocked in the head, or run over by an omnibus, or bitten by a mad dog, or drowned in a gutter. But to proceed, having determined upon your subject, you must next consider the tone or manner of your narration. There is the tone didactic, the tone enthusiastic, the tone natural, all commonplace enough. But then there is the tone laconic, or curt, which has lately come into much use. It consists in short sentences. Somehow thus, can't be too brief, can't be too snappish, always a full stop, and never a paragraph. Then there is, too, the tone elevative, diffusive, and interjectional. Some of our best novelists patronize this tone. The words must be all in a whirl like a humming-top, and make a noise very similar, which answers remarkably well instead of meaning. This is the best of all possible styles where the writer is in too great a hurry to think. The tone metaphysical is also a good one. If you know any big words, this is your chance for them. Talk of the Ionic and Eleatic schools, of Architas, Gorgias, and Alcmaeon. Say something about objectivity and subjectivity. Be sure and abuse a man named Locke. Turn up your nose at things in general, and when you let slip anything a little too absurd, you need not be at the trouble of scratching it out, but just add a footnote and say that you are indebted for the above profound observation to the critic der Reinem Vernunft, or to the Metaphysiter Anfangsgründer der Noterwissenschaft. 
this would look erudite and, and, and frank. There are various other tones of equal celebrity, but I shall mention only two more, the tone transcendental and the tone heterogeneous. In the former, the merit consists in seeing into the nature of affairs a very great deal farther than anybody else. The second sight is very efficient when properly managed. A little reading of the dial will carry you a great way. Eschew, in this case, big words. Get them as small as possible and write them upside down. Look over Channing's poems and quote what he says about a fat little man with a delusive show of can. Put in something about the supernal oneness. Don't say a syllable about the infernal two-ness. Above all, study innuendo. Hint everything, assert nothing. If you feel inclined to say bread and butter, do not by any means say it outright. You may say anything and everything approaching to bread and butter. You may hint at buckwheat cake, or you may even go so far as to insinuate oatmeal porridge. But if bread and butter be your real meaning, be cautious, my dear Miss Psyche, and not on any account, not on any account to say bread and butter. I assured him that I should never say it again as long as I lived. He kissed me and continued. As for the tone heterogeneous, it is merely a judicious mixture in equal proportions of all the other tones in the world, and is consequently made up of everything deep, great, odd, piquant, pertinent, and pretty. Let us suppose now you have determined upon your incidents and tone. The most important portion, in fact the soul of the whole business, is yet to be attended to. I allude to the filling up. It is not to be supposed that a lady, or a gentleman either, has been leading the life of a bookworm. Yet, above all things, it is necessary that your article have an air of erudition, or at least afford evidence of extensive general reading. Now, I'll put you in the way of accomplishing this point. See here. Pulling down some three or four ordinary-looking volumes, and opening them at random. By casting your eye down almost any page of any book in the world, you will be able to perceive at once a host of little scraps of either learning or bellespritism, which are the very thing for the spicing up of a Blackwood article. You might as well note down a few while I read them to you. I shall make two divisions. First, piquant facts for the manufacture of similes, and second, piquant expressions to be introduced as occasion may acquire. Right now! and as I wrote he dictated. Piquant facts for similes. There were originally but three muses, Melite, Memne, Aodi. Meditation, memory, and singing. You may make a good deal of that little fact if properly worked. You see, it is not generally known and looks recherché. You must be careful and give the thing with a downright improviso air. Again, the river Alpheus passed beneath the sea, and emerged without injury to the purity of its waters. Rather stale, that, to be sure, but if properly dressed and dished up, it will look quite as fresh as ever. Here is something better. The Persian iris appears to some persons to possess a sweet and very powerful perfume, while to others it is perfectly scentless. Fine, that, and very delicate. Turn it about a little, and it will do wonders. We'll have something else in the botanical line. There's nothing goes down so well, especially with the help of a little Latin. Right. 
The epidendrum flows aeris of Java bears a very beautiful flower and will live when pulled up by the roots. The natives suspend it by a cord from the ceiling and enjoy its fragrance for years. That's capital. That will do for the similes. Now for the piquant expressions. Piquant expressions. The venerable Chinese novel Ju Kiao Li, good. By introducing these few words with dexterity, you will evince your intimate acquaintance with the language and literature of the Chinese. With the aid of this, you may get along without either Arabic or Sanskrit or Chickasaw. There is no passing muster, however, without Spanish, Italian, German, Latin, and Greek. I must look you out a little specimen of each. Any scrap will answer, because you must depend upon your own ingenuity to make it fit into your article. Now write. Aussi tendre que Zaire, as tender as Zaire French alludes to the frequent repetition of the phrase la tendre zaire in the french tragedy of the name properly introduced it will show not only your knowledge of the language but your general reading and wit you can say for instance that the chicken you were eating write an article about being choked to death by a chicken bone was not altogether aussi tendre que zaire right van muerte tan escondida que non te siente venir Porque el placer del morir no me estorne a dar la vida. That's Spanish from Miguel de Cervantes. Come quickly, O oh death, but be sure and don't let me see you coming, lest the pleasure I shall feel at your appearance should unfortunately bring me back to life again. This you may slip in quite apropos when you are struggling in the last agonies with the chicken bone. Write, Il pover uomo che non son era accorto andava combattendo e era morto that's italian you perceive from ariosto it means that a great hero in the heat of combat not perceiving that he has been fairly killed continued to fight valiantly dead as he was the application of this in your own case is obvious for i trust miss psyche that you will not neglect to kick for at least an hour and a half after you have been choked to death by that chicken bone please to write Und sterbe ich doch, no sterbe ich denn, durch sie, durch sie. That's German from Schiller. And if I die, at least I die, for thee, for thee. Here it is clear that you are apostrophizing the cause of your disaster, the chicken. Indeed, what gentleman or lady either of sense wouldn't die, I should like to know, for a well-fattened capon of that ripe Molucca breed, stuffed with capers and mushrooms, and served up in a salad bowl, with orange jellies en mosaique. Write, you can get them, by the way, at Tortoni's. Write, if you please. Here is a nice little Latin phrase, and rare, too. One can't be too recherche or brief in one's Latin, it is getting so common. Ignoratio elenchi. He has committed an ignoratio elenchi, that is to say, he has understood the words of your proposition, but not the idea. The man was a fool, you see. Some poor fellow whom you address while choking with that chicken bone, and who therefore didn't precisely understand what you were talking about. Throw the ignoratio elenchi in his teeth, and at once you have him annihilated. If he dares to reply, you can tell him from Lucan, here it is, that speeches are mere anemonae verborum, anemone words. The anemone, with great brilliancy, has no smell. Or, if he begins to bluster, you may be down upon him with insomnia jovis, 
reveries of jupiter a phrase which silius italicus see here applies to thoughts pompous and inflated this will be sure and cut him to the heart he can do nothing but roll over and die will you be kind enough to write in greek we must have something pretty from demosthenes for example anere ophelgon kaipalin makesetai there is a tolerably good translation of it in hudibras for he that flies may fight again which he can never do that's slain in a blackwood article nothing makes so fine a show as your greek the very letters have an air of profundity about them only observe madam the astute look of that epsilon that phi ought certainly to be a bishop was ever there a smarter fellow than that omicron just a twig that tau in short there is nothing like greek for genuine sensation paper in the present case your application is the most obvious thing in the world wrap out a sentence with a huge oath and by the way of ultimatum at the good-for-nothing dunder-headed villain who couldn't understand your plain english in relation to the chicken-bone he'll take the hint and be off you may depend upon it these were all the instructions mr b could afford me upon the topic in question but i felt they would be entirely sufficient i was at length able to write a genuine blackwood article and determined to do it forthwith in taking leave of me, Mr. B. made a proposition for the purchase of the paper when written, but as he could offer me only fifty guineas a sheet, I thought it better to let our society have it than sacrifice it for so paltry a sum. Notwithstanding this niggardly spirit, however, the gentleman showed his consideration for me in all other respects, and indeed treated me with the greatest civility. His parting words made a deep impression upon my heart, and I hope I shall always remember them with gratitude. "'My dear Miss Zenobia,' he said, while the tears stood in his eye, "'is there anything else I can do to promote the success of your laudable undertaking? Let me reflect. It is just possible that you may not be able, so soon as convenient, to get yourself drowned, or choked with a chicken-bone, or, or hung, or bitten by a—but stay.' now let me think of it there are a couple of very excellent bulldogs in the yard fine fellows i assure you savage and all that indeed just the thing for your money they'll have you eaten up auricula and all in less than five minutes here's my watch and then only think of the sensations here i say tom peter dick you villain let out those but i was really in a great hurry and had not another moment to spare i was reluctantly forced to expedite my departure and accordingly took leave at once somewhat more abruptly i admit than strict courtesy would have otherwise allowed it was my primary object in quitting mr blackwood to get into some immediate difficulty pursuant to his advice and with this view i spent the greater part of the day in wandering about edinburgh seeking for desperate adventures adventures adequate to the intensity of my feelings and adapted to the vast character of the article i intended to write in this excursion i was attended by one negro a servant pompey and my little lapdog diana whom i had brought with me from philadelphia it was not however until late in the afternoon that i fully succeeded in my arduous undertaking an important event then happened of which the following blackwood article in the tone heterogeneous is the substance and result end of section six
Recording by Libby Gone. A Predicament by Edgar Allan Poe. What chance, good lady, hath bereft you thus? Comus. It was a quiet and still afternoon when I strolled forth in the goodly city of Edina. The confusion and bustle in the streets were terrible. Men were talking, women were screaming, children were choking, pigs were whistling, carts they rattled, bulls they bellowed, cows they lowed, horses they neighed, cats they caterwauled, dogs they danced. Danced! Could it then be possible? Danced! Alas, I thought, my dancing days are over. Thus it is ever. What a host of gloomy recollections will ever and anon be awakened in the mind of genius and imaginative contemplation, especially of a genius doomed to the everlasting and eternal and continual, and as one might say, the continued, yes, the continued and continuous bitter, harassing, disturbing, and, if I may be allowed the expression, the very disturbing influence of the serene and godlike and heavenly and exalted and elevated and purifying effect of what may be rightly termed the most enviable, the most truly enviable, nay, the most benignly beautiful, the most deliciously ethereal, and, as it were, the most pretty, if I may use so bold an expression, thing, pardon me gentle reader in the world but i am always led away by my feelings in such a mind i repeat what a host of recollections are stirred up by a trifle the dogs danced i i could not they frisked i wept they capered i sobbed aloud touching circumstances which cannot fail to bring to the recollection of the classical reader that exquisite passage in relation to the fitness of things, which is to be found in the commencement of the third volume of that admirable and venerable Chinese novel, The Joe Go Slow. In my solitary walk through the city, I had two humble but faithful companions, Diana, my poodle, sweetest of creatures, she had a quantity of hair over her one eye, and a blue ribbon tied fashionably around her neck. Diana was not more than five inches in height, but her head was somewhat bigger than her body, and her tail being cut off exceedingly close gave an air of injured innocence to the interesting animal which rendered her a favorite with all. And Pompey, my negro, sweet Pompey, how shall I ever forget thee? I had taken Pompey's arm. He was three feet in height, I like to be particular, and about seventy, or perhaps eighty, years of age. He had bow legs and was corpulent. His mouth should not be called small, nor his ears short. His teeth, however, were like pearl, and his large, full eyes were deliciously white. Nature had endowed him with no neck, and had placed his ankles, as was usual with that race, in the middle of the upper portion of the feet. He was clad with striking simplicity. His sole garments were a stock of nine inches in height, and a nearly new drab overcoat which had formerly been in the service of the tall, stately, and illustrious Dr. Moneypenny. It was a good overcoat. It was well cut. It was well made. The coat was nearly new. Pompey held it up out of the dirt with both hands. There were three persons in our party, and two of them have already been the subject of remark. There was a third. That person was myself. 
I am the Signora Psyche Zenobia. I am not Suki Snobs. My appearance is commanding. On the memorable occasion of which I speak, I was habited in a crimson satin dress with a sky-blue Arabian mantelet, and the dress had trimmings of green agraffas, and seven graceful flounces of the orange-coloured auricula. I thus formed the third of the party. There was the poodle, there was Pompey, there was myself. We were three. Thus it is said there were originally but three furies, Melty, Nimi, and Hetty, Meditation, Memory, and Fiddling. Leaning upon the arm of the gallant Pompey, and attended at a respectable distance by Diana, I proceeded down one of the populous and very pleasant streets of the now deserted Adina. On a sudden, there presented itself to view a church, a Gothic cathedral, vast, venerable, and with a tall steeple which towered into the sky. What madness now possessed me! Why did I rush upon my fate? I was seized with an uncontrollable desire to ascend the giddy pinnacle, and then survey the immense extent of the city. The door of the cathedral stood invitingly open. My destiny prevailed. I entered the ominous archway. Where, then, was my guardian angel, if indeed such angels there be? If, distressing monosyllable, what world of mystery, and meaning, and doubt, and uncertainty is there involved in thy two letters? I entered the ominous archway. I entered, and without injury to my orange-coloured auriculas, I passed beneath the portal, and emerged within the vestibule. Thus it is said the immense river Alfred passed, unscathed and unwetted, beneath the sea. I thought the staircase would never have an end. Round, yes, they went round and up, and round and up, and round and up, until I could not help surmising with the sagacious Pompey, upon whose supporting arm I leaned in all confidence of early affection. I could not help surmising that the upper end of the continuous spiral ladder had been accidentally, or perhaps designedly, removed. I paused for breath, and in the meantime an accident occurred of too momentous a nature in a moral, and also in a metaphysical point of view, to be passed over without notice. It appeared to me—indeed, I was quite confident of the fact—I could not be mistaken—no. I had, for some moments, carefully and anxiously observed the motions of my Diana. I say I could not be mistaken. Diana smelt a rat. At once I called Pompey's attention to the subject, and he, he agreed with me. There was then no longer any reasonable room for doubt. The rat had been smelled, and by Diana. Heavens! Shall I ever forget the intense excitement of the moment? Alas! What is the boasted intellect of man? The rat, it was there. That is to say, it was somewhere. Diana smelt the rat. I, I could not. Thus it is said the Prussian Isis has, for some persons, a sweet and very powerful perfume, while to others it is perfectly scentless. The staircase had been surmounted, and there were now only three or four more upward steps intervening between us and the summit. We still ascended, and now only one step remained. One step, one little, little step. Upon one such little step in the great staircase of human life, how vast a sum of human happiness or misery depends! I thought of Pompey. Alas, 
I thought of love. I thought of my many false steps which have been taken, and may be taken again. I resolved to be more cautious, more reserved. I abandoned the arm of Pompey, and without his assistance, surmounted the one remaining step, and gained the chamber of the belfry. I was followed immediately afterwards by my poodle. Pompey alone remained behind. I stood at the head of the staircase, and encouraged him to ascend. He stretched forth to me his hand, and unfortunately in doing so was forced to abandon his firm arm upon the overcoat. Will the gods never cease their persecution? The overcoat is dropped, and with one of his feet Pompey stepped upon the long and trailing skirt of the overcoat. He stumbled and fell. This consequence was inevitable. He fell forward, and with his accursed head striking me full in the in the breast, precipitated me headlong, together with himself, upon the hard, filthy, and detestable floor of the belfry. But my revenge was sure, sudden, and complete. Seizing him furiously by the wool with both hands, I tore out a vast quantity of black and crisp and curling material, and tossed it from me with every manifestation of disdain. I fell among the ropes of the belfry, and remained. Pompey arose, and said no word but he regarded me piteously with his large eyes and sighed. Ye gods, that sigh! It sunk into my heart, and the hair, the wool. Could I have reached that wool, I would have bathed it with my tears in testimony of regret. But alas, it was now beyond my grasp. As it dangled among the cordage of the bell, I fancied it alive. I fancied that it stood on the end with indignation. Thus, the happy dandy flows arius of java bears it is said a beautiful flower which will live when pulled up by the roots the natives suspend it by a cord from the ceiling and enjoy its fragrance for years our quarrel was now made up and we looked about the room for an aperture through which to survey the city of edina windows there were none the sole light admitted into the gloomy chamber proceeded from a square opening about a foot in diameter at a height of about seven feet from the floor. Yet, what will the energy of true genius not effect? I resolved to clamber up to this hole. A vast quantity of wheels, pinions, and other calabastic-looking machinery stood opposite the hole, close to it, and through the hole there passed an iron rod from the machinery. Between the wheels and the wall where the hole lay there was barely room for my body, yet I was desperate and determined to persevere. I called Pompey to my side. You perceive that aperture, Pompey. I wish to look through it. You will stand here just beneath the hole, so. Now, hold out one of your hands, Pompey, and let me step upon it, thus. Now the other hand, Pompey, and with this aid I will get upon your shoulders. He did everything I wished, and I found upon getting up that I could easily pass my head and neck through the aperture. The prospect was sublime. Nothing could be more magnificent. I merely paused a moment to bid Diana behave herself, and assured Pompey that I would be considerate and bear as lightly as possible upon his shoulders. I told him I would be tender of his feelings. Osi tendre que beefsteak. Having done this justice to my faithful friend, I gave myself up with great zest and enthusiasm to the enjoyment of the scene which so obligingly spread itself out before my eyes. 
Upon this subject, however, I shall forbear to dilate. I will not describe the city of Edinburgh. Everyone has been to Edinburgh, the classic Edina. I will confine myself to the momentous details of my own lamentable adventure. Having, in some measure, satisfied my curiosity in regard to the extent, situation, and general appearance of the city, I had leisure to survey the church in which I was, and the delicate architecture of the steeple. I observed that the aperture through which I had thrust my head was an opening in the dial-plate of a gigantic clock, and it must have appeared from the street as a large keyhole, such as we see in the face of French watches. No doubt the true object was to admit the arm of an attendant to adjust, when necessary, the hands of the clock from within. I observed also with surprise the immense size of these hands, the longest of which could not have been less than ten feet in length, and where broadest eight or nine inches in breadth. They were of solid steel, apparently, and their edges appeared to be sharp. Having noticed these particulars, and some others, I again turned my eyes upon the glorious prospect below, and soon became absorbed in contemplation. From this, after some minutes, I was aroused by the voice of Pompey, who declared that he could stand it no longer, and requested that I would be so kind as to come down. This was unreasonable, and I told him so in a speech of some length. He replied, but it was with an evident misunderstanding of my ideas upon the subject. I accordingly grew angry, and told him in plain words that he was a fool, that he had committed an ignoramus elenchi, that his notions were mere insomnary bovis, and his words were little better than an enemy werborum. With this he appeared satisfied, and I resumed my contemplations. It might have been half an hour after this altercation, when, as I was deeply absorbed in the heavenly scenery beneath me, I was startled by something very cold which pressed with gentle pressure on the back of my neck. It is needless to say that I felt inexpressibly alarmed. I knew that Pompey was beneath my feet, and that Diana was sitting, according to my explicit directions, upon her hind legs in the furthest corner of the room. What could it be? Alas! I but too soon discovered. Turning my head gently to one side, I perceived to my extreme horror that the huge, glittering, scimitar-like minute-hand of the clock had in the course of its hourly revolution descended upon my neck. There was, I knew, not a second to be lost. I pulled back at once, but it was too late. There was no chance of forcing my head through the mouth of that terrible trap in which it was so fairly caught, which grew narrower and narrower with a rapidity too horrible to be conceived. The agony of that moment is not to be imagined. I threw up my hands and endeavoured, with all my strength, to force upward the ponderous iron bar. I might as well have tried to lift the cathedral itself. Down, down, down it came, closer and yet closer. I screamed to Pompey for aid, but he said that I had hurt his feelings by calling him an ignorant old squint-eye. I yelled to Diana but she only said bow-wow-wow, and that I had told her on no account to stir from the corner. Thus I had no relief to expect from my associates. Meantime, the ponderous and terrific scythe of time, for I now discovered the literal import of that classical phrase, had not stopped, nor was it likely to stop in its career. Down and still down it came, it had already buried its sharp edge a full inch in my flesh, and my sensations grew indistinct and confused. 
At one time I fancied myself in Philadelphia with a stately Dr. Moneypenny, and another in the back parlour of Mr. Blackwood receiving his invaluable instructions. And then again the sweet recollection of better and earlier times came over me, and I thought of that happy period when the world was not all a desert, and Pompey not altogether cruel. The ticking of the machinery amused me. Amused me, I say, for my sensations now bordered upon perfect happiness. The most trifling circumstances afforded me pleasure. The eternal click-clack, click-clack, click-clack of the clock was the most melodious of music to my ears, and occasionally even put me in mind of the graceful ceremonic harangues of Dr. Olipod. Then there were the great figures upon the dial-plate. How intellectual they all looked! And presently they took to dancing the mazurka, and I think it was a figure V who performed the most to my satisfaction. She was evidently a lady of breeding, none of your swaggerers, nothing at all indelicate in her motions. She did the pirouette to admiration, whirling round her apex. I made an endeavour to hand her a chair, for I saw that she appeared fatigued with her exertions, and it was not until then that I fully perceived my lamentable situation. Lamentable, indeed, the bar had buried itself two inches in my neck. I was aroused to a sense of exquisite pain. I prayed for death, and in the agony of the moment could not help repeating those exquisite verses of the poet Miguel de Cervantes. Veni Buren ten escondida, query non te senti veni, pork and pleasure, deli mori, nami torni deri witty. But now a new horror presented itself, and one indeed sufficient to startle the strongest nerves. My eyes from the cruel pressure of the machine were absolutely starting from their sockets, whilst I was thinking how I should possibly manage without them, one actually tumbled out of my head, and rolling down the steep side of the steeple, lodged in the rain-gutter which ran along the eaves of the main building. The loss of the eye was not so much as the insolent air of impudence and contempt with which it regarded me after it was out. There it lay in the gutter, just under my nose, and the airs it gave itself would have been ridiculous had they not been disgusting. Such a winking and blinking were never before seen. This behaviour on the part of my eye in the gutter was not only irritating on account of its manifest insolence and shameful ingratitude, but was also exceedingly inconvenient on the account of the sympathy which always exists between two eyes of the same head, however far apart. I was presently relieved, however, by the dropping out of the other eye. In falling it took the same direction, possibly a concerted plot, as its fellow. Both rolled out of the gutter together, and in truth I was very glad to get rid of them. The bar was now four inches and a half deep in my neck, and there was only a little bit of skin to cut through. My sensations were those of entire happiness, for I felt that in a few minutes at farthest I should be relieved from my disagreeable situation and in this expectation I was not at all deceived. At twenty-five minutes past five in the afternoon, precisely, the huge minute-hand had proceeded sufficiently far on its terrible revolution to sever the small remainder of my neck. I was not sorry to see the head which had occasioned me so much embarrassment at length make a final separation from my body. It rolled down the side of the steeple, then lodged, for a few seconds, in the gutter, and then made its way with a plunge into the middle of the street. 
I will candidly confess that my feelings were now of the most singular, nay, of the most mysterious, the most perplexing and incomprehensible character. My senses were here and there at one and the same moment. With my head I imagined at one time that I, the head, was the real Signora Psyche Zenobia. At another I felt convinced that myself, the body, was the proper identity. To clear my ideas on this topic I felt in my pocket for my snuff-box, but upon getting it and endeavouring to apply a pinch of its grateful contents in the ordinary manner, I became immediately aware of my peculiar deficiency, and threw the box at once down to my head. It took a pinch with great satisfaction, and smiled me an acknowledgment in return. Shortly afterward it made me a speech, which I could hear but indistinctly without ears. I gathered enough, however, to know that it was astonished at my wishing to remain alive under such circumstances. In the concluding sentences it quoted those noble words of Ariosto, Il pover homi che non sera corti, and have a combat tenti eri morti, thus comparing me to the hero who, in the heat of the combat, not perceiving that he was dead, continued to contest the battle with inextinguishable valour. There was nothing now to prevent my getting down from my elevation, and I did so. What it was that Pompey saw so very peculiar in my appearance I have never yet been able to find out. The fellow opened his mouth from ear to ear, and shut his two eyes as if he were endeavouring to crack nuts between the lids. Finally, throwing off his overcoat, he made one spring for the staircase and disappeared. I hurled after the scoundrel these vehement words of Demosthenes. Andrew, O Phlegathon, you really make haste to fly, and then turn to the darling of my heart, to the one-eyed, the shaggy-haired Diana. Alas, what a horrible vision affronted my eyes! Was I that rat I saw skulking into his hole? Are these the picked bones of the little angel who has been cruelly devoured by the monster? Ye gods! And what do I behold? Is this the departed spirit, the shade, the ghost of my beloved puppy, which I perceive sitting with a grace so melancholy in the corner? Hearken, for she speaks, and heavens, it is in the German of Schiller. Und stubby duke, so stubby den, duke sie, duke sie. Alas, and are her words not too true? And if I died, at least I died, for thee, for thee. Sweet creature, she too has sacrificed herself in my behalf. Dogless, niggerless, headless, what now remains for the unhappy Signora Psyche Zenobia? Alas, nothing. I have done. End of section seven.